0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, the twelfth chapter, and if you'd like to follow along, it's also printed in the middle of your bulletin insert. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Here ends our reading. It is difficult to be corrected to have the courage to fully see a mistake and become committed to a new way of being. It's embarrassing, it's painful, but it is possible to try again. It is possible to slow down the fear. It's possible to experience the relief that jubilant well-being has come again and that the end we feared is not the end. I was this week with colleagues learning in a new environment at a conference exploring best practices, one of those key words lately, (laughs) about how to end domestic violence in a multidisciplinary field. And in my interest in soaking up information, understanding completely measuring what new insights would be problematic or liberating for the people with whom I interact, the individuals, the systems, the way change happens, the way different members of my circle learn, I was like a philosophy student, finding holes, defending positions, debating varying arguments, at times fearful, cautious, excited, hopeful, Irritated by roadblocks, and in the process, my energy had an aggressive and hostile edge. My behavior included interrupting others, judging, being dismissive. My goal to learn, to better help, to better understand was not bad and my process of learning is not bad. I have a tendency to go to shame when I've made a mistake, something Brene Brown talks a lot about. I have been trained as a philosophy student. That is not a bad skill. But my interruptions and my energy could be experienced by those not also in that field, not as discerning, but as attacking. Whose opinion gets to stand? Whose take on reality gets to have the last word? Whose sense of others' intentions is more accurate? All of this was in the name of a more peaceable kingdom. All of it in order to feel safe. All of it to be more attuned, to be a better educator, to be a better advocate, with more appreciation of the complexity of systems. But in the process, I was stumbling over my own effortfulness. It leaves me cringing. But when I slow everything down, I'm also able to receive myself with compassion. Gratefully so. I feel something similar for this privileged yet fearful fool in Jesus' parable. Having had a successful crop, the rich man begins to make plans to expand the storehouses for his wealth and begins to take assurance in knowing he will be able to relax and enjoy as a result. He won't have to worry. It is awful to mess up. It's awful to realize what you are working so hard toward resulted at least partially in being hurtful or damaging to another, and sometimes I'm more interested in being quite unforgiving toward the rich fool in this parable, and sometimes I feel more generous. The desire to be well, to have enough food and drink, not to have to worry, and even beyond that, to be able to be free, to be joyful, is common to us all. And is not wrong. But there is a push or a correction that is made in this story to expand the idea of well-being, of shalom, wider. When we read Luke, it's important to always be remembering that it's a time and a place where more and more money is going in a lopsided direction to a few wealthy elite and less and less is being dispersed through families. And so more and more people are poor, and fewer and fewer people have much. It used to be that the land was passed on from one generation to the next, but the feudal system was adopted, with a small number of elite taking up the land on behalf of a lord, on behalf of a king, and they would all have basically sold their allegiance to the one above them in order to have a measure of wealth themselves. And it behooved them not to disrupt the system, or they also would be among the poor. Though the wealthy would allow the people to work the land that perhaps once used to be their own family property, what they produced went back to the landowner, so that this rich fool is having so much abundance in wealth it is probably safe to assume that he's acquiring that wealth at the detriment of a lot of other people. And he is failing his call to look out for the well-being of all. Anybody who was in a royally anointed position throughout time according to the ancient Jewish norm was understood to have been called by God in order to be an insurer of justice, Righteousness and shalom, fullness of well being for all of life. So, when they failed to do that, when a king failed to do that, when a prophet failed to do that, they were in big trouble because it was a violation against God. One of Luke's unrelenting messages is that we must all participate in ushering in the kingdom of God this reality of shalom, in this moment, now. Not waiting for some future time, not storing up for some future moment for God to calm down and fix. It was inaugurated by Jesus, and we are meant to be the hands and feet. And even if the nation is in a terrible predicament, that's all the more reason to participate now. Now. And the way this critique is done in this parable is to lift up this rich man as being a fool. In the wisdom tradition, and particularly in Proverbs, the idea of the fool is used in wisdom sayings which are shared by elite sages to their disciples. When they speak of the fool, it's a warning to their own. That unless you continue to follow our ways, our wisdom, you are going to win a life with the poor. Speaking of the poor was not really about ending poverty, but about keeping people in line, keeping other privileged from going astray. To be a fool was to go against the wise elite. This past week, I was listening to an interview with Rebecca Traister, author and writer for New York Magazine, responding to our political season. She was observing that this is a time where there is a great, quote, rupture and shift around the kinds of people who can have power and the kinds of people who get to participate in political conversations, who get to have their voices heard. This was happening in Luke's audience, too. Who gets to have access to power? Who gets to have access to well-being? Whose story gets to be told? As we see in our canonical texts, the people whose voices got to be told were the elite. They were the sages. They were the ones protecting themselves their own. What I like about one reading of this parable is that Jesus is using a narrative that the elite would have used, but instead of saying, and let's continue propagating our norm, it's like he's saying, okay, you are the ones whose story we're going to use? Well, then let's tell the full story. And the full story includes how the storing up of privilege was damaging to the kingdom of God, how it was dismissive of the well-being of those whose privilege was stripped, of those for whom it was not safe to assume they would be treated with dignity. The full story includes the cage of the elite's own allegiance, a stumbling block to their own full well-being, and a wider imagining of shalom. It includes the story of a fracturing of the whole self, missing the call to reflect the kingdom of God, to live animated by the call of well-being. How do we move into well-being? I have a friend who sometimes tells me about a men's group he attends at his church. Not the specifics, but the general experience. At the start of this group, most of the men, I don't think any of the men really, had previously been in a group with other men where the goal of the group was to be fully vulnerable, where they were free to have feelings and to speak honestly about their experience of trying to navigate life. Each time this group comes up in our conversation, he talks about how it's so awesome to experience and witness other men coming to new realizations about themselves and find both self-compassion and some humor about the mistakes they've made and the new learnings that they've arrived at and how they've arrived at those learnings. I imagine it's like light flooding into a room Or like the fresh glass of water that these men were so in need of, so thirsty for, as we all are. As they discover that their well-being increases, the more they can connect with one another and allow their inner worlds to come out. I think the kingdom of God is in there somewhere. Shalom is in there somewhere. It sounds to me like a group that practices trying to free themselves from what is sometimes referred to in the Buddhist tradition as the second arrow. When you have realized you've done harm, you feel the pain of the first arrow. And then the second arrow comes in punishing yourself for it. Then you can't move through it. How do we move forward? Embracing our humanity. How do we make an old story that sounds punitive, a story like like Jesus' parable of the rich fool, not so punitive, but human? There is this story retold by Pema Chodron about the Dalai Lama, who is being interviewed by someone who asked him, Do you have anything in your life that you feel bad about, that you've done? The Dalai Lama said, Oh, yes many things. For example, an elderly monk came to me and asked me about doing these yogic practices which required a lot of physical ability, sort of designed for 18-year-olds. And I advised him against it because I said I thought he was too old. And he seemed to take that well, and he left. And then I heard that he committed suicide Because of his belief system, he thought that if he committed suicide that he would get a younger body and he could do the exercises. So the Dalai Lama was left with the regret that he really unintentionally, nevertheless, had been responsible for this man's death, this man's suicide. The interviewer was stopped in his tracks and then he said, oh my goodness how did you ever get rid of that feeling? And the Dalai Lama paused for quite a long time and really thought about that. And he said, I didn't. It's still there. I just don't allow it to drag me down and pull me back. Pema Chodra noted, We have this idea that you either have it, you either have guilt, or you get rid of it. And the question came from that point of view. But the Dalai Lama paused and he really thought about it and he said, I didn't get rid of it, it's still here. And then he said, And I realized that being dragged down by it or held back by it would be of no one's benefit not mine or anybody else's. So I go forward. I just do the best I can. Sometimes I catch myself thinking that I have to keep recalling my mistake or I will make it again. But studies show you are more likely to continue in that pattern you want to change if you keep the self-flagellation going rather than if you can let it go. The Dalai Lama said, I realize that being dragged down by it or held back by it would be in no one's benefit, not mine or anybody else's, so I go forward and I just do the best I can. We are called to love one another as we love ourselves. This is the unending teaching of Shalom. Amen.